0: Welcome to the Wilderness Medic podcast in this latest episode which is a little bit longer than usual I'm pleased to be joined by my friend Dr Mohamed Boy Jallo and we're going to be talking about the 2014 Ebola outbreak um, and uh, lessons that we can learn from this um, and apply to the current COVID-19 pandemic Welcome to the Wilderness Medic podcast Check out our website at www.thewildernessmedic.com
1: Expedition resources, wilderness medicine blog and much more. Today I'm going to have a, a chat
0: with my friend um, Dr. Mohamed Boy jallo We met up in Liverpool when studying for the Diploma. Tropical medicine and hygiene, and hopefully get some positive results for this in a a few weeks' time. Um, So, yes, Boy, thanks for for joining me today. And we're going to have sort of a chat a bit about um, your experiences um, back home in Sierra Leone with with Ebola in 2014 and give a very moving talk um, towards the end of our time up up in Liverpool. Um, And we're going to have sort of a chat about that and also look at uh, lessons learned and things that may help us with the, the cable situation. So, yeah, thanks for joining me, boy. How, how are you at the moment? How are you today?
1: I am fine. I'm fine. I'm very fine. Thank you for having me. I'm happy.
0: Good, good. So let's head back to sort of to 20, 2014 in, in Sierra Leone. And you, were, you were just coming to the end of... Of, um, of medical
1: school, weren't you? Yeah, exactly. Um, in May 2014, when Sierra Leone recorded its first case of Ebola, <clears throat> I was then a junior doctor. The country had experienced dealing with localized outbreaks like cholera and Lassa fever. However, like its neighbors, Sierra Leone allowed hope to supersede its preparedness. As deadly and contagious as Ebola is, it was new to the region and country. Doctors knew very little about the disease given that it was only a problem in Central Africa. The hope that the health system will be able to deal with the outbreak as it has always done with others meant that the Ministry of Health and Sanitation, which is our own kind of NHS, did not bother to invest in training healthcare workers on infection control or case management. It also did not procure the required supplies for safety and diagnosis, nor engage communities to gain their trust and compliance in getting the outbreak under control. The outbreak therefore spread and succeeded in crashing the fragile health system on its trail, infecting many and killed about 4,000 Sierra Leoneans, with 221 of those being healthcare workers. This period was a challenging time for everyone in Sierra Leone, but more so for healthcare workers who continue to work with little or no training, inadequate PPE, a hostile patient population, absence of a clinical management guideline or a therapeutic agent, and a deeply distrusting community to which they return every day after work.
0: Mm, that sounds, sounds very difficult and, and very challenging. And, and obviously you are sort of in the thick of it. And, and maybe some parallels to to the current pandemic as well, maybe?
1: Um, it so happens that I was one of these healthcare workers um, in the front line, um, as it is now. Mm. Freshly out of medical school then, I found myself at the forefront in August 2014 as the country's capital city, Freetown, started recording cases of Ebola. Over the following six months, I worked in three Ebola treatment centers as a clinician, with a combined total Ebola population of over 1,000. Those six months were as educating and life-changing as they were demanding. The same could be said about this pandemic. So I spent the subsequent six months working on infection prevention and control in the last two affected districts and as an IPC coordinator. Most of the things I learned then have stayed with me and I found them very useful in this pandemic. I am happy to share some of them in this podcast to help doctors in the front line of the COVID-19 response prepare and deal with the inevitable difficult days ahead, either during this pandemic or others to come. In this post podcast, I will share the lessons from Ebola at the individual level and mainly as a doctor in the front line.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I'm sure people listening will be will be really appreciative of that. Um, and so I suppose, if if we think back when it when it started, how how did people react? So sort of clinicians and um, and sort of the population as well.
1: Um, the natural and default response in face of an unknown threat of any sort is flight. People tend to refuse to report for work, or when they cannot avoid going to work, attending but providing minimum service. This response is born out of our assessment that we are susceptible to the threat, and do not have what it takes to face the threat. The first lesson I learned in the Ebola outbreak, and that is true in any other, is the hidden strength in us to deal with the threat, even when our knowledge of the threat is minimal. Where there is a will, a way naturally appears. No one is too young or junior or busy to help. So I volunteered to work in the front line unsure how much I could offer as a fresh medical school graduate. In the end, it was a rewarding moment, a rewarding period for my patients and me, and it was also challenging. I would like to refer to the period as either a steep learning curve or funnily baptism by fire experience. Therefore, my advice to all would be frontline healthcare workers is never to underestimate your strength Never to underestimate your capability and to change the energy of flight into a fight.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And as, as you're saying, that will definitely strongly resonate with with a lot of people around the world who are, who are working in, in the COVID-19 pandemic at the moment. Um, and what sort of challenges did you find with local communities?
1: Um, Contextualizing an outbreak in terms of its cultural and traditional practices is very important. You should not see the fact that you do not know as no one knows. As expert or technocrats in the field, when faced with a challenge, our patients may have the answers that we seek to help them get back their health. We need to consult the communities that we serve and understand the challenge at hand. In the cultural and traditional perspectives of the affected population. It was our communities that taught us literally how to undertake safe and dignified burials. See yourself as a student who stands to learn from your patients whenever you interact and not as an educator or mentor. That way, you stand an excellent chance of getting them to do what is right for them and their community. When at a loss on what to do with an infant with no symptoms but whose mother was fighting for her life, as an example, I decided to ask the other patients about any relative that they knew who might be happy to care for the infant. It was then that one of the patients, totally unrelated to the other, but was already recovering, volunteered to care for the baby. Thinking back later that day, I realized that it was safer to put the patient in the care of a survivor instead of sending that infant home to her family, where she can be symptomatic and infectious to others.
0: Mm, I guess this is is an important thing to sort of think on even when you're seeing an individual patient, but to think of the the public health consequences, I suppose. And um, that's something that obviously we've seen a lot of in in the media. Um, and I suppose the other big thing that there's been a lot of uh, a lot of coverage about is 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 PPE, particularly with uh, with COVID, and that's been in the media a lot in the UK as being sort of a source of concern. Um, how were things obviously to start out in, in Sierra Leone back in 2014?
1: Well, um, this is an important lesson also from that um, outbreak that nothing is set in stone. In the frontline standards change all the time. The changes are because instead of standards dictating the availability of resources, the resources or lack thereof dictates the standards. Being static or dogmatic in such a situation slows you down could you, your patients and your colleagues at risk. So we had to adopt our standard operating procedures, for instance, to reflect the amount or type of PPE that we had during the crisis, and also kept on substituting one drug for another in our syndromic management of our Ebola patients. That's how you cope with such outbreaks.
0: Sure, sure. And um, I suppose looking, looking back, to the Ebola outbreak. Obviously it was a bit different in that it wasn't on on a global scale. Um, and then so lots of teams and health advisors sort of flew in to help and it was obviously a very, a very difficult situation. How how is this sort of influx of knowledge perceived within Sierra Leone? Because I, I suppose obviously having having external help is a good thing, but sometimes that can also pose its own challenges as well.
1: Right. Um, You may find yourself working in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-sectoral team. Although this can sometimes be frustrating, as you take much longer to reach a consensus, you must recognize the immense opportunity that such an environment presents. It reminds me of the African proverb, which says, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go with someone. In an emergency like outbreaks, speed matters, but more important than speed is consensus and the sustainable interventions that arise from it. You should therefore find the courage to listen keenly and understand each player's perspective with the attitude that everyone is there to help and must be allowed to share their viewpoint. A receptive and open attitude is even more critical when you are the host, as I was back then in Sierra Leone and working with an international team. Sure, yeah. um, During the Ebola outbreak, I had colleagues who were not receptive and this is a lesson I have learned. They were not receptive to having expatriates come to their Ebola treatment centers or even grant them an interview. This animosity arose from their view that the expatriates were paid far more, staying in fancy hotels, and always critical of local practice. Uh, okay. On the other hand, I was sympathetic to the fact that the expatriates were away from home, not sure of local customs and traditions, and having to tread carefully. So I always was um, pleased to give time to expatriates and in the process developed relationships with people like Timo Dempsey, from whom I learned a lot.
0: Yes, and just far, this is uh, Professor Timo Dempsey, who's one of our lecturers at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, Um, Yeah, who, as you say, he's got a wealth
1: of experience, hasn't he? Yes exactly he was very helpful when he came out there the relationships cultivated in such environments as you will know last for a lifetime resulting in loyalties and a sense of brotherhood seen among war veterans and leading to more win-win ventures for all in the future so personally i owe my postgraduate training in israel the uk and others entirely on the people i worked with during the ebola outbreak they were either the ones who directed me to funding opportunities or provided me with letters of recommendation opportunities for jobs in the World Health Organization. Such teams also inspire one to think of oneself as a human first, and then a citizen of any country. While working in that outbreak, I witnessed the universal empathy in healthcare workers of different nationalities for patients. The calling to serve as healthcare workers, I happily discovered, was the same, regardless of what identity our patients carried. That is a beauty, most visible. During outbreaks, and that is also present in this pandemic.
0: Yeah, and no, I think that's that's uh, that's really inspiring, and that's that's spot on, isn't it? I mean, we've seen sort of um, a whole sort of a lot of international solidarity, loads of people coming together. Um, it's I, I suppose that the, the thing is, it's a shame it takes a pandemic for for these things to happen sometimes, but uh, you know, I think that's. That's, that's really important. And uh, you, you also met some other, some other doctors who I think were relatively junior as well, as that writer, a British chap, um, who, who's written a book, I think, as well.
1: Uh, yes, I guess you're referring to um, the British doctor, Oliver Johnson. I was really inspired by him and yes. another Spanish yes. uh, doctor, Martha Lado. These guys insisted on continuing to work and keeping the biggest hospital in Sierra Leone open right through the outbreak. They did so even though that meant working without pay and being cut off from their superiors abroad at some point. They wouldn't pack their bags and fly out even though they could, but instead stayed not only to work as doctors but as coordinators and even janitors of their department. They inspired me and that is why it was a straightforward thing for me to volunteer to work on COVID-19 in the UK, where I was when COVID became a pandemic.
0: Sure, and and you're currently doing this in in, in around Essex, is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. I'm in Chelmsford to be specific, uh, working at the Broomfield Hospital.
0: Okay. Excellent, and um... What sort of role have you been been doing there? Have you have you been able to apply sort of experiences that you had had back home to to the situation um, in the UK?
1: Um, yes. So um, I work um, as the infection control lead of the hospital, and so since I came, I've been able with the team there to develop um, an audit tool to assess um, infection control in the different wards. Um, including the COVID wards and the non-COVID wards. We've also been able to um, find a way of ensuring that we do not run out of um, personal protective equipment. Like there was a time when um, gowns were in short supply. So as a hospital, we devised a way of um, harvesting these yeah. gowns. Um, gladly we got fresh supplies, so we didn't have to use those gowns that we are harvested. But uh, that's an experience from Ebola that oh, okay. um, we could have applied here to see how single-use items could be used again in a safe way.
0: Sure, sure. And no, I think that's that's uh, that's really interesting. And how, how exactly was was that going to happen? Were they sort of going to be autoclaved or or sterilized? What what sort of approach were you, were you thinking of?
1: So. Yeah, usually when people doff their gowns, they do it in such a way that they rip them apart at some point. Um, but we had to train the staff to doff these gowns in a way that would preserve their physical nature. And then we put them in special linen yeah. bags and they were taken to a, um, a laundry company. So they were to be laundered and, and not to be autoclaved because they were not suitable for, 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 for autoclave but they were to be laundered oh, okay. and then exposed in such a way that the virus will die, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. I guess it, show, it shows how lessons learned in, in one situation can be can be very applicable, isn't it? And um, I suppose well, what, so at the moment, obviously, lots of, um, of, uh, of medical students and... Uh, sort of some halfway through their studies, maybe some who have sort of been fast-tracked to become junior doctors. Um, what sort of advice do you have for them who, you know, to help them in, their, in this current situation?
1: And in short, I'll ask them to buckle up their belts for the worst in this pandemic and in any other outbreak situation. You see, um, I never appreciated why the medical school in Sierra Leone had to be as difficult as it was, and still is. And so I posed this question to the principal of the medical school one day as to why this medical school was made difficult. His reply to me was, medical students also have to learn to live through tough circumstances and make difficult decisions. That is why we must ensure that the medical school is tough to weed out all weak students. He then pointed out that as doctors working in a remote hospital, that resilience gained through medical school would be very useful given the limited resources in these remote hospitals. This answer struck me suddenly as I was doffing at um, a 120-bed Ebola treatment center after a long ward round, seeing close to 60 patients on the second day of opening this facility. During the rounds, I kept on wondering if we had prematurely assured the Minister of Health that we were ready to start receiving patients. Under that pressure, I recalled his answer and then miraculously found a way to smile, thinking like he wasn't even remotely thinking about a situation like this one. As doctors, therefore, we should buckle our belts and be ready for the worst that healthcare throws at us. In the front line of pandemics, prepare yourself not only to play your traditional roles, but also to find others. Looking at you as their teacher, source of inspiration, administrator and advocator, and you should be in place to play all these roles.
0: Absolutely, yes. And I remember you saying, saying at Liverpool that many doctors, yourself included, found that they were sort of acting up beyond what they sort of ever thought they'd be doing at this stage in in their career, being, you know, being fresh out of out of medical school in a situation is obviously very, very unexpected. And I guess that, that um, sort of touches on the sort of qualities that, um, that you need to be, to be a good leader.
1: Exactly. Leadership by example is an important ingredient in the pandemic. This is as vital at the national level as it is at the healthcare facility level. Every act of kindness carries risk, and you must therefore calibrate very well what you ask of your staff. I was lucky to serve under the commandership of an outstanding leader. Even though as commanding officer then of the military hospital where I work, and had the authority to command us to provide clinical care to Ebola patients, he chose not to. In a surprising feat of leadership, he told us gentlemen and ladies, I will not instruct you to work in the Ebola isolation centre, but I will volunteer myself and I'm happy to get volunteers. This is in stark contrast to the head of medicine in another hospital in the same city, who, having made a rotor of how junior doctors should work in the Ebola isolation unit, was overheard saying, "Even if I had 10, um, sorry, even if I had four layers of PPE on, I will not go into that unit." As a result, morale dropped among the doctors, yeah. and they refused to work there. It took the kind and exceptional leadership of a U.K. and Spanish doctor to keep that unit working thus preserving the continuity of non-Ebola care in this referral hospital. As food soldiers in the Ebola war, the doctors had to take on roles like bathing and feeding patients in order to demonstrate to nurses that it is safe to do so in PPE. This is the sort of leadership that doctors in the front line must demonstrate to keep the momentum alive for all healthcare workers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And on a a human-to-human level, that's, that's so important, showing showing those qualities, I think. And going back to those two leaders, they're such, such different approaches, aren't they? And, and it sounds like there was a lot of fear, and understandably, amongst doctors and, and the overall population as well. Um, and with COVID, most countries have been or are still in lockdown. Um, there's been a lot of public health campaigns about hand-washing, social distancing and this kind of thing, Do you think that um, the public health teams played a a similar role during the Ebola outbreak? Was there that same strategy in place?
1: Um, What I will say is, um, coming from the other end, that um, clinical services are central in an outbreak response. Mm. They feed into the public health response. It is common to hear public health officers boast about the higher impact of public health than clinical medicine. They failed to mention that most public health messages are only followed if the public has confidence in the clinical care provided by the health system's clinical arm. The centrality of clinical care became evident during the Ebola outbreak and is a strong case for improving clinical care in any epidemic. Initially, people were told to take preventive measures because there was no cure. Using fear was counterproductive because people who had the virus refused to present early to hospitals and instead preferred to die amongst their loved ones, not realizing that that will mean passing the deadly infection onto others. In a short span, therefore, whole families and yeah. villages were wiped out by the virus. When, however, we finally decided to advertise that patients were surviving the infection, more people started presenting much earlier with the glimmer of hope that they too will survive, thus cutting down the transmission chains in the community. You see, self-preservation is a strong incentive to following public health guidance. It appears that health systems need to be seen as capable of helping people who seek their care. Where we cannot improve survival rates, we must be seen to be doing all within our power to assure a dignified death. That way the public sympathizes with us and even praises us in the face of our apparent failure. I will give you an example. Once, I met a patient who was very sick and wanted to give her medication and food. She, however, requested to have a bath. After her shower, she then prayed for us and then oh, said Sorry, boy,
0: you broke up a little bit. You broke up a little bit. Can you start the story again, just from where you were saying about, about meeting the patient who was very sick?
1: Yes, so I met this patient. He, um, she was very sick and I uh, wanted to give her medication and food. She, however, requested to have a bath, a shower. So after her shower, she then prayed for us and then said that she would now have the food. Unfortunately, when we returned to feed her, she was already dead. Her family was eventually told by other patients in the room that we did so much to help her overcome the disease. And we noticed a spike in the number of people from her community who were self-presenting to the facility for Ebola test and requesting to be admitted. We gain their confidence not by saving the life of their community member, but by being reassured that we genuinely care about their needs. Also, we had so much cooperation from the other patients who were in that same ward.
0: Mm, that's, that's very powerful. And I suppose stories like that would also sort of cause a shift in, in the health beliefs within some of these communities as well. They do. And I suppose another aspect that would be interesting to sort of have a think about is, is sort of about testing. So obviously at the moment, there's huge amounts of uh, research and media coverage about um, testing for COVID or, or the lack of testing. Um, how is the testing yeah. situation sort of on the ground during the Ebola outbreak?
1: Well, um As clinicians in an outbreak, having a limited lab capacity is almost always a reality, so we are left with our gut feeling. Having a limited lab capacity um, could be because the diagnostic test capacity may require expansion to meet the growing demand. Limitation also exists on the number of other tests that you can do to manage your patients because most labs cannot process samples of patients carrying the disease of the outbreak. So during the Ebola outbreak, our ability to diagnose Ebola was limited in the country, and that meant having to cohort suspected cases for days before getting a result to help us shift them along the different care pathways. Initially, the turnaround time was nothing less than four days. So while in suspect wards, it was very difficult and very challenging to prevent transmission of the virus within the patient among the patients. It was most difficult, though. Because once a patient is diagnosed as having Ebola, there was no lab to run basic tests such as, say, malaria status, hemoglobin levels, electrolyte levels, to help you plan their management. So as a clinician, you are left with your gut feeling after stretching your clinical assessment of the patient. This can be very frustrating and sadly is a reality for a frontline clinician and we must prepare for such. And health systems must avoid such situations as much as pop as possible
0: yeah that must have been been very difficult not having access to sort of some of those lab tests particularly in terms of managing people who are unwell and i suppose the potential differential diagnosis list is is a lot longer as well with some of the tropical infections that are more prevalent where where Ebola is
1: Exactly. Everything presents the same.
0: Yeah, yeah. Certainly, certainly does. Yeah. We learnt a lot about that in our, in our lectures, didn't we? And I guess, did you find yeah. that sort of in certain communities that there was late access to seeking medical attention because of sort of a fear of the clinical medicine sort of and more use of traditional healers and... and, and um, more
1: traditional practices? Um, Yes. So understanding the health-seeking behavior could be an eye-opener to the clinical profile differences between COVID-19 patients around the world and those, say, in in Africa or in Sierra Leone. You see, in Sierra Leone, it was common for patients to present without fever during Ebola because they were on antipyretics and antibiotics, which are easy to have, or may have had several cocktails of herbal medications. Once we focus our history taking on thorough medication history, we are able to plan management more effectively and help contact tracers with where our patients have been before the presentation. The alternative care pathways that patients follow and their health-seeking behaviors serve as a vital input into planning, tracing, and isolation protocols in outbreaks. And this is something that doctors working in Um, Africa and in other remote places should be prepared for. A thorough history of where their patients seek care is very, very vital input into the contact tracing arm of a response.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I suppose that's something that uh, working in the UK, you don't tend to, you almost take it for granted in that someone's, Usually, just gone to see their GP. They, I suppose, some, there's a bit of a bit of herbalism, but there's not that same um, variety in health beliefs quite often. Um, so that that must be really quite quite challenging. And um, yeah, that that's that's really really uh, yeah really really interesting. And, and I suppose did did you find that a lot of the time that traditional healers were dispensing? sort of, um, you mentioned that some of them would be on the antibiotics, or were they more just just sort of trying buying them over the counter and things like that?
1: Um, Individuals will buy um, all sorts of medicines from pharmacies, and when they go to traditional healers, the traditional healers will not give them antibiotics or antipyretics, no, they will give them herbs. And uh, usually they keep on... Mm. Um, going to these traditional healers for care until they are too weak to even go there that is when they will be rushed to hospitals and by then they will be teeming with the virus and will have infected a lot of their family members
0: yeah and I guess that um, that sort of highlights the importance of of, um, sort of the infection control measures as well doesn't it
1: Oh, yes. As I always say, infection control is the bedrock of care and of um, a response to a pandemic. You see, during the Ebola outbreak, I realized that infection control mattered a lot. Once my mom told me in August 2014, as I was saying farewell to my family, I do not want a dead hero, I made it a mission not to get infected. So once a healthcare provider becomes part of the chain it deals a double blow to the health system by decreasing the human resource available, which is always scarce in a low resource setting, and increasing the demand. More scary than that in COVID-19 is the fact that an asymptomatic healthcare worker who may be caring for vulnerable populations will end up infecting them, and many other colleagues where administrative and engineering controls for IPC are inadequate. You see, healthcare institutions quickly become outbreak amplifiers, feeding cases to the community. For the reasons listed, healthcare workers therefore have to be more religious about compliance with infection control measures than members of the public and thus have to take painful decisions as they fight the pandemic. Let me highlight some examples. One, there is no justified emergency response in an epidemic if that means letting down our guard on infection control measures. Never sacrifice protocols on infection control to respond swiftly to a patient's need. It is highly distressing for us to follow infection control measures when that means our patients in need must wait for our service. However, that is best for our patients and for everyone. Then, not visiting family is hard, but is essential in protecting our families. Ways of mitigating this difficulty are to be in touch with them, more often via the phone or FaceTime. Finally, maintaining a heightened sense of vigilance towards your colleagues is hard, but equally very important. Do not lull yourself into interpreting a colleague's symptoms as being due to anything other than the outbreak disease. Most healthcare workers got infected by colleagues or family members in the Ebola outbreak, and there is no reason why that will not be the case in this COVID nineteen pandemic,
0: absolutely, no, that's, that's very true. And I think, yeah, there's been a lot of um, a lot of people saying about the no emergencies in in a pandemic, but this, I guess, there's it's one thing saying it, but it must be very difficult emotionally when you're in that sort of scenario to sort of resist the training you've had through medical school or or whichever, and then you're you're sort of in this kind of emotional turmoil, and that must put a huge amount of stress on, on well, both healthcare workers and, and the health systems as well.
1: You are right. Um, outbreaks put health systems under intense, intense strain. One way it does so is by throwing up more questions than answers, hence national guidelines that are traditionally based on clear evidence lag the outbreak a lot. Frontline healthcare workers, therefore, find themselves in need of innovating at the local level. In the process, they face opposition from colleagues who are not sure of the safety or efficacy of the proposed interventions. Being more forgiving of colleagues who dare to innovate is more helpful than being combative. They may turn out to be wrong later, but that shouldn't detract from the fact that they are genuine in wanting to help. There was a time in the Ebola outbreak where we had a fundamental difference among colleagues on how much could be safely done for patients with dehydration. Those who turned out to be wrong were those who insisted on doing very little for patient rehydration and accused others who promoted aggressive fluid resuscitation as putting healthcare workers at risk. By and large, we did not allow this fundamental difference to produce hatred among us. And once evidence for the safety of aggressive rehydration became apparent, everyone embraced the practice.
0: Yeah, I guess it comes back a bit to what, what we were saying earlier. Um, so it's, it's, I guess it's difficult dealing with, with a disease when there's it's limited evidence base. Like, So It's been, it's been similar with, uh, with COVID-19, hasn't it, with changing treatment protocols, trials, the strategies, I suppose you, you've, you've seen it with the hydroxychloroquine data when there was some evidence that it was, was beneficial, but then now the studies are actually being halted because of um, sort of worsening morbidity and mortality, even though no one was actually setting out to cause harm. And I, I guess that's the trouble with sort of using different medications to see if they work in a pandemic like this.
1: Yeah. Exactly. It can be very confusing.
0: And we, yeah. And we've spoken quite a lot about sort of health systems and, and touched upon some of the challenges, uh, both with Ebola and and coronavirus, with, with not sort of seeing friends, family working in an environment that can potentially be very, very traumatic with high patient mortality, something that's also obviously been an issue with with coronavirus. Um and obviously this, this, this can be difficult to talk about, but how did you find this affected healthcare workers sort of on an individual level back in Sierra
1: Leone? Um, it is um, indeed a very challenging period for all healthcare workers. It is challenging for everyone, but more so for healthcare workers. Healthcare workers must therefore prepare themselves in pandemics to witness horrible scenes including the loss of their patients at a rate that they have never been accustomed to, of patients who would otherwise survive, and with no clear explanation as to why they ended up dying, and most hurtfully, the experience of losing your own colleagues. They may also find themselves suffering from hypochondria on a regular basis. It was common for me to think that I had Ebola because of a sore throat that may have been due to talking a lot as I delivered training to healthcare workers. Thus, healthcare workers must not shy away from asking for help and finding time to rest. Seeking support is vital in ensuring that they do not break down under extreme distress. Having healthy relationships or a supporting family is essential for healthcare workers during a pandemic. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And uh, I think... Um, there's there's been a good a good um, set of resources that have been developed for sort of helping uh, healthcare workers with with their mental health and things, and I'll put some links to that uh, with this podcast episode as well. There's also been a great show of solidarity to oh, healthcare good. workers as well, um, which is
1: yeah,
0: um, surely offers a, sort of a bit of support at least. But obviously there there are still going to be um, a lot of mental health Expe- consequences sort of moving forwards. So I'm sure.
1: Yeah, especially in the UK here, the public has been awesome.
0: Yes, yes, they've, they've, been, they've been really good. Yeah. Um, and has there been anything similar back in Sierra Leone?
1: Well, um, see, as I was saying, in the UK here, the, pub- uh, the public has been very supportive of the NHS. You walk everywhere, you see people putting thank you NHS of all sorts, of all colours. It's, um, it's been really, really um, reassuring and supportive. And largely, it has been the case also in Sierra Leone. People have been br- um, bringing gifts to the hospitals, um, food to the hospitals. They, they, they have been donating... Um, um, PPE items to hospitals. So this time around the support from the public um, towards healthcare workers has been very, very um, 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 encouraging in in this pandemic, unlike what it was during the Ebola outbreak. Yeah, Yeah. I
0: suppose it's fairly fresh in in, in the memory. And uh, I suppose there is because of what happened, there was maybe a bit of a shift in in terms of, of of health beliefs. Do you think?
1: Um, some of it, some of it might have changed. People still continue to seek care in um, in, um, in 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 alternative places. They still go to their traditional healers, but um, this time around, people are more conscious of um, the fact that their late presentation will not only um, lead to their death, but it will also lead to the infection of their loved ones. So it has not been as difficult now to get people to come to hospital yeah. when they have respiratory symptoms as it was during Ebola, when people will have clear signs and symptoms of Ebola, but they will just not come to hospital. It's been different.
0: No, that makes makes sense, yeah. And I remember you, you had an amusing story in the talk you gave up, up, up in Liverpool about something that happened uh, on the wards.
1: Um, yes, um, you see, when we hear about or when we listen to the news, we think um, in these um, intensive care units for COVID or in the Ebola treatment centre, it's all death and gloom. But at the end of the day, Love conquers all. A beautiful surprise for me during the Ebola outbreak was to realize that even amid a grim situation like that brought about by Ebola, people have the strength and find ways to humor themselves and others around them. People continue to be people, doing the regular things that people do, including falling in love. Once on a night call, I received an invitation to attend to an altercation in one of the Ebola wards. On investigating the matter, there was a dispute between two female patients over a male patient. The first female patient accusing the male patient of wanting to run off with the other female patient, forgetting that she got Ebola because of him in the first place. Another funny um, incident was the sight of an armed soldier running away from a feeble Ebola patient who decided to discharge himself from the Ebola treatment center. That was a funny sight.
0: Yeah, I guess that's like like you say, I, I suppose it's it's easy to become fixated on on the facts, I suppose at the moment that everywhere you look it's coronavirus or COVID. But yeah, it's it's so important not to lose touch of the fact that yeah, we are still human and all these these important sort of micro stories are still happening all around us. I think that's that's really valuable. Yeah. And um I guess we're kind of coming coming towards towards the end now. Um and um obviously with with Covid there's been a whole bunch of um sort of conspiracy theories um about 5G, you know, about all, all sorts of things, Bill 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 Gates being involved. Were there similar things like that um with the Ebola outbreak back in twenty fourteen?
1: Um yes. Um, conspiracy theories were rife in the, in the, in the time of Ebola. Um, however, during this COVID-19 pandemic, it turns out that the memory of Ebola is still fresh in the minds of Sierra Leoneans. Thus, it was easier for the public to follow the health messages on improving hygiene to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Swiftly, everyone from government and individual institutions in the private and public sectors had setups to facilitate hand washing within their institutions. The government was much swifter in declaring a public health emergency, and the country was quicker to unite behind the health emergency regulations. The conspiracy theories that largely stalled the Ebola response in 2014 were not a problem this time. There is no way of telling whether this was because the health ministry was better at health messaging or that people remember that conspiracy theories turn out to be wrong and detrimental to communities that believe them. So conspiracy theories have thrived in other African countries during this pandemic, but that has not been a massive problem in Sierra Leone and others affected by Ebola in West Africa. So it looks like Ebola has helped in the COVID response. Stigmatization also of healthcare workers, which was prevalent during the Ebola outbreak, is gladly absent in the COVID-19 pandemic. There have hardly been instances where health workers were evicted from their rented accommodation out of fear of posing a danger to other household members. That's Communities good. are more accepting yeah. of healthcare workers yeah. now. I'm also happy to observe that this time, healthcare workers embrace the idea of working in COVID worlds. That is a far cry from 2014. Yeah when hardly anyone wanted to work in Ebola treatment centers. This time, doctors at the tertiary referral hospital, Connaught, for instance, are leading the anti-COVID response. The local ownership of the response is a good sign for the country's health system. The limitation of implementing the public health measures in the COVID response is primarily due to constraints in resource funding. So this time, there is a focused response to the pandemic and conspiracy theories have not been um, any significant detractions or distraction from that response.
0: That sounds, that sounds certainly, uh, yeah, the fact that um, there's more sort of, uh, I suppose, senior people empowered and wanting to sort of take on these roles, as you say, it sounds 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 very different. Um, and uh I guess that, yeah. that kind of brings us to an end, but I'd really like to thank you for, for, uh, for joining me and having, having a chat about, about, um, your experiences. I think it's, it's, I find it amazing how you, like, if I think back to what I was doing as a, um, you know, freshly out of medical school and, and what you were doing it couldn't, couldn't be more different. And uh, I'm full of respect for that. I think, it, I think that's, uh, that's amazing. And, um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having a chat and hope, I hope everyone who, who who listens to this finds it equally inspiring
1: um thank you very much Dan for organizing this podcast and um, I count myself lucky to have been able to contribute um, in the Ebola response and now get, having the opportunity to contribute to the covid 19 response in a modern setting as um any advanced setting as um, that's offered by the NHS, and uh, we are all in a global village. and uh, The more we put um, our hands together, the better we are as a people. Thank you. Absolutely,
0: I'm into that. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, then check out our website www.thewildernessmedic.com. If you're interested in being a guest on a future episode or writing a blog for us, then do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time, take care.